0: Please join me in turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We will be focusing this morning on verses 18 through 27. This is God's Word. God's word is living and active. It penetrates to the very core of who we are. As the spirit applies it to our lives, its power to transform us is incredible and eternal. Please give your attention to God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, weather forecasters are telling us it's going to be a really hot summer this year, which I am sure will stir up more controversy over what is called anthropogenic global warming. That's the scientific theory that human activity is causing the Earth's climate to get hotter and hotter. Now, when somebody asks me for my opinion on that subject, I have an opinion on everything. (laughs) But that's one subject. When I'm asked about it, I say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know whether human activity is causing the climate to get warmer or warmer, whether it's a long thing. I don't know to what extent human activity might be contributing to that. I really don't know. I'm not a scientist. And I've done enough reading on it to know that the data, the scientific data on that subject is so extensive and complex and complicated, how am I going to figure it out? And it's disturbing to me, although to be expected, that scientists who talk about it, many of them are thoroughly objective and good sources, but there are some, many I think, whose philosophical, religious, or political leanings cause them to be biased in interpreting the data. And so they will argue on one side of it and you'll have scientists with religious and political and philosophical leanings on the other side of the issue who tend to see in the data what they want to see and we're all like that. And so for me, who is not an expert, to go to the experts has been kind of a frustrating thing. I don't know who to trust. And so... I don't hesitate to say, I don't know. I'm not a scientific expert, but I am somewhat of an expert in what God's word says. And it tells us two important things on this subject. First point, according to scripture, is that mankind is fully responsible for everything that's wrong in this world, including the climate. Everything that's broken is because of us, because of sin. Secondly, global warming, kind of, is going to bring an end to life as we know it on this planet. Peter tells us this in the third chapter of Second Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, to me, what scripture tells me is that my sin has caused all the suffering and brokenness and that my responsibility to this planet is to be a good steward of God's planet, to treat it with respect and love and gentleness and care as one who is responsible to my creator for it. And, that my hope is not in this planet. That my hope is not here. That my hope has to be beyond that day when this universe will be purged by fire and recreated as a new heavens and a new earth. Romans 8 is about how we live in the meantime. Romans 8 tells us how to live between the first coming of Christ, which ended with his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and his second coming, which is going to happen, when he will return in his resurrection body and all of his glory, and he will bring about a cleansing and restoration of this heavens and this earth. Life between the first and second comings of Christ is all about the already and the not yet. We are already saved because of what Christ did in his first coming, but we are not yet fully saved. And the fullness of that is something far beyond our wildest imaginations. In 1 Peter 1, we read this at the beginning of the service. It says, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's living hope is what I want us to focus on this morning. The chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, begins by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of our condemnation has been taken away because he paid for it at the cross. Our sin has been removed. Our guilt and our shame is taken away. We are given the gift of Christ's righteousness, so we stand before our God, our Creator, and our Judge as purely righteous, purely clean, acceptable to Him in His holiness. But how do we live until He comes again? Well, to those outside the church, we must look a little schizophrenic. Because what the Bible tells us in this chapter and everywhere else in the Scriptures, is that we are to be, in this life, between the first and second comings of Christ, simultaneously grieving about the present and rejoicing in hope for the future. Grieving and rejoicing. Groaning with hope. That's what this life looks like for the believer. Groaning daily, but groaning in hope. But Paul wants to make clear from the very beginning of this passage that the focus needs to be on the hope. He says in verse 18, there is no comparing our current suffering and future glory. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Before he talks about the groaning and the hope, he begins by making it very clear that there's no real comparison between the two. They're not even on the same scale. Matter of fact, as he talks about comparing them, you almost get the picture of one of those balancing scales, you know, I've got a pan on each side, and when they're equally balanced with weights on both sides, it's level, but when one outweighs the other, that's that's kind of the picture that he's putting forward. And on one side of the scale, on one pan, he piles up all the different kinds of physical, emotional, psychological, mental sufferings that we have to go through in this fallen world. And then on the other side of the scale. He piles up eternal life, a renewed and perfect body and soul, a renewed earth without pain or sorrow or disease or any kind of brokenness. A new heavens and a new earth that is full of the glory of God, and we see God face to face for all eternity. And he puts that on the other side of the scale, and it immediately goes to the floor. There's no comparison. No comparison between the two. And we're to live with that awareness. As Paul says earlier in chapter 8, in the past part of the chapter we didn't read, he says that we're already, because of Christ's atoning work at the cross, we are already heirs with Christ of the kingdom. We're heirs already. It belongs to us already. It's accomplished. It's done. But we're not yet fully delivered from sin and death so life is full of groaning the word groaning here in the original greek means deep expressions of sorrow from the depth of your being expressions of sorrow and paul is saying that that's to be a characteristic of life between the first and second comings of christ he actually mentions. did you notice it he mentions three types of groaning in this passage three parties who groan actually First, he mentions the groaning of creation. Look at verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, in this context, when he says creation, the scriptures use the word creation in many different senses. But when he says creation here, he's not talking about the angels in heaven or the fallen angels. He's not talking about believers or unbelievers. He's talking about what we would call nature, subhuman creation. The animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the hills and the valleys, the sun, moon, and stars. That's the creation he's talking about. And as gloriously beautiful as the creation is today, and it is gloriously beautiful if you take a moment to to notice, it is still, as they used to say, red in tooth and claw. It's full of weeds, it's full of violence, it's full of predators. It's full of mutations, deadly forces, natural disasters, and mosquitoes. I hate those things. And it is certainly true, according to Scripture, that we are to blame for all of it. Adam's sin, the sin that we inherited from Adam, the sins that we continually commit daily... God has placed this beautiful, glorious creation under a curse. It is contained under a curse. Can you imagine what it should be? In verse 20 and 21, he says, creation is subjected to futility. Passively, the creation was subjected to futility by its creator because of our sin, against its will so that it is now in bondage to corruption. What a sad thing to see the beauty of creation around us mutated, distorted, corrupted, dying, decaying, turning to dust and blowing away. Last year we studied the book of Ecclesiastes and the preacher, Koheleth, Professor Q as we called him, reminded us over and over that under the sun, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That this current state of the world between Christ's comings is destined to perish. There's no hope in it, in and of itself. In Psalm 102, verse 26, it says, The earth and the heavens will wear out like a garment, but And that's the main message of this passage that Paul wants to get across. But in verse 19, it says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God when our risen Lord returns. I love it when scripture personifies nature. And I know it's a poetic device. I know that there's a sense in which this is not literally true, but I love the idea of creation groaning along with us and also longing in anticipation with us for its release from bondage to corruption and death and decay. The creation personified, Paul says, sees its sufferings as being a lot like labor and childbirth. It leads to an event so wonderful that you immediately forget the pain that preceded it. I love the actual literal Greek of what he says here. He says, the creation waits with outstretched head. That's the idea, I think the image you're supposed to get is like seeing your young child trying to see over the windowsill, up on his tiptoes, craning his neck, stretching it as far as he can so he can see out the window to see if the ice cream truck is coming down the street. Eager, longing. That's the attitude of creation, looking for the second coming of Christ. You see, this is not the only place where scripture personifies creation. It's particularly in response to when it talks about the second coming of Christ. It tends to personify creation, to recognize that it rejoices and groans with us. In Psalm 96, it says, All the trees sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. In Psalm 98, it says, let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together at the coming of the Lord. In Isaiah 35, it says, the desert shall blossom abundantly and rejoice in that day with singing. In Isaiah 55, says, the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing. What a day. Paul says, on that day, creation will be set free to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, just as we are the cause of all the brokenness in creation, we are, it's our glorification that is the hope of all creation. That's what the creation is waiting for, is for God to finish his work in saving us, to glorify us, to bring us into the fullness of what Christ died for. Because not only has he promised to deliver us from sin and its effects, but he's promised to deliver the creation from sin and its effects. And it will happen. No more curse. Isaiah describes it beautifully. When the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lay down with the goat, and the calf will lie down with the lion, and a child will play among them happily and safely. No more hurt, no more crying, no no more grief, no more loss, no more destruction. Can you imagine a creation like that? Of course you can't. But it's all centered about what Christ has done for the church. And so Paul then moves into talking about the groaning of the church. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Yes, today we grieve along with the creation for the effects of our sin upon the creation. We grieve over the natural disasters, the hurricanes, the floods, the earthquakes. We grieve over the weeds and the thorns and the frustrations of our work. We grieve over the diseases and the deformities and we grieve deeply over death but it's even more than what the creation grieves over scriptures say that we grieve over other things that go much deeper i love to read through the psalms the psalms are meant to be the prayers the the expressions of the faith of god's people especially in times of trials and difficulties and sufferings and the psalms often talk about our tears Psalm 42 talks about God's people, the church, weeping over persecution. It says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? In Psalm 39, the psalmist weeps over our sins, our own sins. It says, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, hear my prayer, O Lord. Hold not your peace at my tears. And then in Psalm 119, it talks about us weeping over the sins of everyone around us. Where it says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And so while we wait eagerly between the first and second comings of Christ, we groan, we weep over abortion. We weep over child abuse. We weep over sexual perversion and bondage. We weep over broken homes and broken relationships. We weep over oppression. We weep over injustice. We weep over atrocity. We weep over genocide. We weep over wars and rumors of wars. Yes, there's an appropriate time to be righteously indignant and angry, but overall, the prevailing attitude of the church in the time between the first and second comings of Christ is to be weeping over the sins around us. And Jesus said blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And there you have it again. Groaning and weeping and yet hope and eager anticipation. So we wait eagerly. We stand on our tiptoes. We crane our necks. We stretch everything in us to look for the coming of Christ and what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. His resurrection was the Proof that we will be resurrected. That's what the New Testament teaches. In First John chapter 3, the Apostle John speaks of it in this way. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. There's the already. We are God's children now. We are already heirs with Christ of the eternal kingdom. And he goes on to say, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see how that eager anticipation and hope drives sanctification. It drives us to want to be like the one who is coming, to speed the process of our transformation into the likeness of Christ, to prepare for that next life beyond death and beyond the renewal of the new heavens and the new earth. We didn't continue reading, but near the end of this passage, in verse 29, it says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He who began a good work in you will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's your confidence. There's your hope. We live with limited realization of our salvation, but intense anticipation of its fullness. That's the Christian life between the two comings as the church grieves and rejoices in hope. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I think the older I get, the more this body begins to break down, the more I love this passage because it speaks of that joy and groaning as we think about the redemption of our bodies that Paul promises in Romans 8, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent, this body, this sin-affected body, if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he goes on to say, he who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee that the salvation of our souls and the redemption of our bodies, this purification, this perfection of who we are, both inwardly and outwardly, is going to take place. Christ's resurrection is a first fruits of our resurrection, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is given to us as a first fruits of the fullness of our salvation. He's a guarantee that it's going to happen. And that brings me to the last groaning that Paul mentions in Romans 8. It's the groaning of the Holy Spirit. He says, we not only groan in anticipation together as the church, but in a very real sense, he says, God groans along with us in this fallen world and helps us in that weakness and groaning. He says in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What a comfort to know that we never groan alone. Never. and we're never alone in our prayers between the first and second coming of Christ scripture teaches that god the father always hears us when i pray when we pray he always hears us when we pray why because jesus christ died for all our sins took away all the barriers between us and god and reconciled us to god and enabled us to be adopted by god's grace so that we are heirs with him in the kingdom so god the father always hears us we are his beloved children but scripture goes up beyond that to say God always hears us because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven and he is there interceding for us as our great and true high priest. That's why the Father hears us when we pray. But Paul goes beyond that. He says not only do you have the Father listening to the Son interceding in heaven, but you've got the Holy Spirit interceding for you here on earth with you, in you. God the Father hears us because God the Son is interceding and God the Spirit is interceding. God the Son in heaven and God the Spirit on earth. And Paul goes on to give us comfort regarding our inadequacy in prayer. I guarantee you that every believer sitting here this morning feels inadequate in prayer. I have never met a Christian who hasn't admitted that they feel inadequate in prayer. and God knows that. That's why he gave us the Spirit. The Spirit is to cover that inadequacy, to cover our limited perspective and our selfishness, our short-sightedness. We don't know what to pray for in our selfishness and weakness and all the complexities of this fallen world. We don't know what to pray for. Do you remember what it was like when you were a child and you had to go talk to somebody and tell them something really important and you had a friend or a brother or a sister or a parent who said, don't worry about it, I'll go along with you. I'll go along with you. And that's what the Spirit says to all of us, as we feel hesitant to go to God in prayer, not knowing how to pray, what to say, what's his will. We don't know. The Spirit says, I will go with you. I will pray for you. I will intercede for you. I remember when my parents were dying, And they both suffered so much before they died. And you know how it is if you've ever lost a loved one like that. As they continue to suffer, you get to the point where you don't know what to pray. You get to that point like I did where you say, Lord, I don't know whether to pray for them to be healed or to pray for them to be released into the eternal presence of Christ once and for all. I don't know what to pray for. You know what the Holy Spirit says to that? That's okay. Just share your heart because the Holy Spirit knows the mind of the Father. And the Father knows the mind of the Holy Spirit perfectly and the Holy Spirit is with us when we pray and he will bring your prayers into conformity with the will of God and the will of God is always perfect. God works all things together for good for those who are the loved ones according to his good purpose. That's what verse 28 reads in chapter 8. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And so we groan. The creation groans. And the Holy Spirit groans along with us. But don't forget how the passage began. He, Paul says, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. We can't save the planet because Jesus Christ already did, it's saved. It will be done. It will be a new heavens and earth that is far beyond anything you can imagine. And you are already saved if your faith is in Jesus Christ. But there's so much of your salvation yet to be experienced. Life under the sun, life between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ is to be filled with groaning and eager anticipation. That's just reality for us now until he comes again. Let me read to you the rest. I've quoted a couple times at the beginning of the service. I quoted the beginning of the sermon. Let me quote the rest of that passage from 1 Peter 1 to hear how he echoes what Paul is saying in Romans 8. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I hope that that's your hope this Easter morning. I really hope that that's your hope. Because that hope never disappoints. You know, we need hope to live. You can't live without hope. If you don't have hope tomorrow morning, you've got no reason to get out of bed. You need hope. You need hope that things are going to get better, that this isn't the, as good as it gets. You need that hope in order to do your job or to go to school or to lead your family or to do whatever it is God has called you to do. You need hope. And I don't know, you know, I think hope sometimes is like spiritual gasoline. You know, it's, it's, what, it's our fuel. It's what drives us, and the problem is is that when our tank begins to get low, and it does, we go from being full of hope to being very low on hope, and when it gets very low, especially in this culture, in this materialistic world we live in, we tend to go to temporal and transient things to fill our tank up again. I mean, that's why you want to go shopping when you're low on hope. Because buying a new outfit or buying a new car or buying a new television will fill your tank a, a bit. It gives you something to look forward to, some kind of hope. Or for more long-term fillings of our tank, we'll go to our education and then our career and then starting a family and raising our children. But these things are temporary. They're good things. They're gifts from God from, who's our loving Father from above, but they're temporary, temporary. And if that's where your hope, that's the kind of hope that's filling your tank today, it's going to run out. But the kind of hope that Paul's talking about in Romans 8, and Peter's talking about in his first chapter of his second epistle, that kind of hope cannot, cannot be depleted. It fills your tank every day. And that's where you get the motivation to serve, to live, to witness, to... To be who God has called you to be. It's that hope of the resurrection. And hope that is seen is not hope, Paul says. That's why we groan, but we groan in faith. Let me close with Second Corinthians chapter 4. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence so we do not lose heart. We are heirs with him of that eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, this Easter Sunday is all about hope. And I can imagine in a gathering of this size, there are people coming with full tanks, overflowing with the hope of the gospel, but some and many even are here with depleted tanks, not having the kind of hope it takes to live and serve In this fallen world lord as we groan may we lean on the holy spirit to groan with us as we witness the brokenness in creation may we groan with creation and may we long stretch our necks out stand on our tiptoes to see the coming of the lord jesus christ may that drive us every day no matter how mundane the events of the day may be may it drive us to glorify christ to worship him to serve him to witness for him May our community be transformed as a result. We pray in Christ's name, amen.